Good morning. <laughs> Let me go do that again. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. Whether you're joining us over the live stream or here in person, welcome to a very special worship service at First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin this morning, where we'll be exploring what our faith has to say about reproductive justice. We are a spiritual community dedicated to a free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I'm Chris Jimerson, co-lead minister for values and mission here at the church. I want to especially welcome our visitors this morning. We're so glad you're here. If you'd like more information, please talk to me or any of the ministers that you may see at the church after the service or go to talk to our nice folks at the welcome table. Please fill out a visitor card so we can get to know you a little better. If you're online, there is a link to that at austinuu.org. Click on worship and then you'll see the link. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to greet the holy among us in the comments if you're online, or by turning to those around you if you're here in person. Please join me in saying the words to light the chalice. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. This religious community has a set of religious values. They are transcendence, community, compassion, and transformation. And out of those values arose our mission. It's our common purpose, and we say it together every Sunday so that we may may more readily carry it with us in our hearts throughout the week. Let's do so now. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Each week, to further explore what we mean by that term, beloved community, and its history, we have a moment for beloved community. And today, I am delighted to invite Elizabeth Gray to talk to us a little bit about why reproductive justice is an integral part of building beloved community. When I was growing up, I learned that slavery was a violent institution that exploited people's productive labor. But in my mind, that labor was agricultural, picking cotton in the field, or perhaps enslaved people in plantation homes doing all the domestic work of running a household. It never occurred to me, I never fully comprehended the way that men and women's reproductive labor, the work of creating, bearing, and raising children was integral to maintaining the institution of slavery. This procreative function became even more critical after 1808 when slave owners could no longer import enslaved people and had to breed them. Reproductive oppression continued after the Civil War to today. We have seen black and brown people subjected to decades of forced sterilization, inhumane medical experimentation, and ongoing discrimination in reproductive care. So black people in this country have suffered, in, have suffered reproductive injustice for centuries. The Handmaid's Tale is not a future dystopia. For them, these horrors have been their reality long before Dobbs overturned Roe. 
Yet the fight for abortion rights during my lifetime has centered white women, omitting or dismissing the experiences of many black women. How many of you recall seeing this sign, or one very like it, over the past decades of abortion protests? Keep abortion legal, pro-choice, right? But when it comes to abortion, it doesn't matter if it's legal if there's no access. There is no choice if there is no access. Three years after Roe, we got the Hyde Amendment that barred using federal funds to pay for abortion. Even though abortion was legal, what difference did it make if poor women, mostly black and brown, couldn't afford it? Restrictions on abortion access and funding especially burden people with low incomes, young people, people in rural areas, and people of color. And to better understand how women and pregnant people confront incredible barriers to reproductive care, this map shows how travel alone is a huge obstacle, especially for people in Texas and Louisiana. The darker the pink color, the more the travel time. From Austin, Wichita, Kansas, the nearest abortion clinic is eight hours away. From Brownsville in the Rio Grande Valley, over 13 hours. And times to Las Cruces in New Mexico are similar or worse. Viewed another way, the national average travel time to an abortion clinic is less than one and a half hours, that faint horizontal line near the bottom of the screen. Texas and Louisiana are an average of seven hours or more. And travel is only one barrier. To travel, you need a clinic appointment, money, childcare, leave from your job, and for people in the Valley especially, documentation. The term that recognizes the full context for making choices about our health and lives is reproductive justice. Back in 1994, black feminists were frustrated with the limit, limitations of a white feminist pro-choice movement when women of color, in fact, had minimal choices. They determined the need for an inclusive framework that addressed not just choice, but access and other rights. So what is reproductive justice exactly? The enumeration of human rights to First, maintain personal bodily autonomy. Think freedom from rape or from forced sterilization. The right to have or not have children at the time and place of her choosing. That, therefore, includes access to contraception, comprehensive sex education, STI prevention and care, and adequate prenatal, pregnancy, and postnatal care. And finally, the right to parent children in safe and sustainable communities. Reproductive justice is not a euphemism for abortion. It's a framework based on human rights that encompasses much more than just abortion access. And the reproductive justice framework fits well with UU principles. What can you do to help build the beloved community using an in inclusive, intersectional, reproductive justice perspective. First, fight the shame and stigma. Use the term abortion, and whenever possible, link it with access. 
I'm pro-abortion access. Next, give First UU Austin a credible presence as a community partner by voting for the monthly offering to the Texas Equal Access Fund, which expands access to abortion care through legal ends, and the Marjorie Bowens Wheatley Scholarship Fund that supports BIPOC women aspiring to UU ministry. Third, personally donate to organizations that explicitly center black women in the fight for human and reproductive justice. Organizations like the AFIA Center, Sister Song, or IPAS. And finally, join the Social Action Reproductive Justice Team to work on advocacy, education, and community partnership. Please take the survey if you want to engage. URL preferred, so we don't have to do data entry, but either way, we'll take it. Um, if you want to engage, and visit us in House and Hall to learn more about our activities. Thank you. This is the time in our service where we center ourselves together. And as we center ourselves, it is Trans Day of Remembrance when we hold in our hearts our trans siblings who were killed for simply trying to be who they were born to be. And then early this morning, there was another mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub. At least five people killed, 18 injured. Let us hold them in our hearts and those who love them in our hearts. Breathing in. Breathing out, we follow our breath deeper inside. We follow our breath to our deep wells of compassion, that place where a river of love flows through us, that place where a spark of the divine dwells within each of us. Breathing together, we enter into a time of silence together, remembering that the sounds of small children and other human sounds are a part of the silence in this congregation. Breathing in, breathing out, we now enter into the sacred silence together. I invite you now to light candles of sorrow, joy, remembrance, hope. Those of you here in the sanctuary may light candles on either of our candle walls.
Today's reading was written by Darcy Baxter and was published in the UU World Magazine. It is entitled, What is Reproductive Justice? Reproductive justice emphasizes that everything is connected and therefore insists that we must refuse to isolate or pit important social issues against each other. Instead, reproductive justice advances these rights across the interdependent web of social justice issues. As the advocacy group Forward Together puts it in their Strong Families Initiative, reproductive justice calls on us to work towards a world where every person and family has the rights, recognition, and resources to make decisions about their gender, their bodies, and their sexuality. Where every person, family, and community has what they need to flourish. Today we are so fortunate to have fellow church participants who are going to share with us how the role reproductive justice or the lack thereof has played in their lives, those that they love, and in all of our lives. We'll begin with Kay McLaughlin on video. Good morning, First Viewers. I am Kay McLaughlin, a member of this church for over 20 years. I formerly led the Texas Abortion and Reproductive Rights Action League, known to you as TAYRAL. Now with the moniker of AVOW, uh, lobbying, organizing, educating, and advocating for reproductive justice in Texas. I want to share with you this morning a personal story from my family's life. Mom and dad enjoyed a robust sex life, and mom was in her fifth pregnancy in seven years. She had miscarried early in her pregnancy after her firstborn. She had wanted six kids, but after three, she was done. Dad chose to have a vasectomy, but running his own business and managing kids, when was he going to find the time? Because my birth occurred within 45 minutes of mom's water breaking just two years earlier, her physician recommended an induced labor. It was perfect for mom and dad. Scheduled time away from the business he owned and ran, then performed dad's vasectomy at the same time as the induced delivery. Careful negotiations were required to have my grandmother come in to care for us. She and my granddad ran their own business, and granddad was pretty stingy in giving up his wife and co-worker. All was negotiated so that mom and dad would be coming home from the hospital at the same time to recover while grandma helped with the new baby and kids. So in they went, all things in order. Dad was put under and taken to the operating room. As the doctor was preparing, a nurse came in, noted the McLaughlin name, and said, oh, two McLaughlins today. His wife is in delivery now. Dad woke up from the anesthesia to learn that the doctor had not performed this procedure and that he needed to reschedule for another day. The doctor's explanation was that something might have happened to the new baby and dad might regret his decision. I learned of this was when dad was in his 70s. When he told me the story 45 years later, he was as enraged as though it had happened yesterday. Enraged to the point of tears. Enraged that he and mom had already considered that something might have happened during the birth and that if they lost their baby, they were happy with having three kids. 
enraged that he would be second-guessed in his decision, enraged that he had to start all over again with plans and negotiations and no mother-in-law available, and would be having the vasectomy and recovery when his wife and family needed him at home more than ever before, enraged that their sex life would hold the same threat of an unexpected pregnancy that they could not afford financially, physically, or emotionally. And one more thing to put all this in context. My mother claimed close to hemorrhage with my older sister and was at high risk for another hemorrhage when my younger sister was born. Their decision to seek a vasectomy for my dad was the right choice for them in order to protect my mother and the children they already had. Denying women choice and access to reproductive health care is denying their agency. My father also lost his agency, thanks to an interfering medical provider. Doctors don't have any right to make these intensely personal decisions for their patients, and for sure, neither do a bunch of politicians. Good morning. My name is Barbara Wilm. Most of you probably don't know me, but my husband and I have been attending church here since July with our two-year-old. I was a member of the UU Church in San Antonio in my 20s, but am newly returned to attending after becoming a parent and the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I would like to first say that I've met several women here who fought and marched in the 70s and were part of the changes that allowed me to have the life and make the choices that I have. I am eternally grateful. And I'm ready to fight for everyone with a uterus to have the same access to abortion care that I was afforded. Each year, as I visit my gynecologist, there are two questions that I dread filling out. Number one, how many pregnancies? Number two, the number of live births. Four and one. These numbers feel as though they define me, open me up to questions and judgment, and bring a flutter of emotions, anxiety, shame, grief, sadness. While many women probably don't linger as they fill out these forms, I know there are also many, like me, for whom the answers to these questions potentially unleash a wave of painful emotions. I am 43, so I've experienced roughly 25 years of potential fertility. These numbers have followed me for nearly all of my childbearing years because from 19 to 37 years old, my numbers were one and zero. As a college sophomore, I made a choice I never regretted, but always felt the need to defend. I had an elective abortion. Yes, I fully recognize that being a young, middle-class white female kind of makes me the poster child for what pro-birth people perceive as the majority of abortions, despite the fact that the majority of abortions are actually provided to women of color and women who already have children. Not to mention the wide variety of situations that cause women with desperately wanted pregnancies to seek abortion care as well. To this pro-birth group, I believe I represent the irresponsible young woman who needs to live with the consequences of her actions. So what did living with the consequences of my actions mean to me? First of all, I love kids, and I always wanted to be a parent. I was in college to become an elementary teacher, which I was for 17 years. Second, I was always pro-choice. But as we all know, making a big decision in theory is quite different from having to make it in real life. So while there were a lot of factors, such as growing up in an abusive family in a small town, 
I actually made my decision based on what I felt was best for a child. I considered all my options extremely carefully. First, have a child. I never doubted that I'd eventually finish college and make something of myself, whatever that means. But I always knew I wanted to marry and have a family. And the kind of parent I'd want to be. Listen, I know none of us are living our parenting utopia. <laughs> but we all know having resources and a good support system are very important. The idea that I could have a child and struggle while young, then have the ideal family later, made my heart hurt. How would my first child feel once they saw clearly how later stability and financial security positively impacted their siblings? Could I put a tiny human through that simply because I was irresponsible? And could I, in good conscience, subject them to living in the abusive home that I grew up in, even if for a short time? Again, no. Finally, could I give a child up for adoption? I wrestled with whether or not it was selfish of me to say no. But for me, it came down to one thing. Could I live with the idea that I was putting a child into the world that might also feel in some way, that might always feel in some way that they were unloved, unwanted, or just not enough? I just couldn't. Again, this is my story. And the thing is, people make impossible decisions every day. And they make the ones that they feel their heart can live with. I support anyone who's been in this situation and struggled through being a young parent or had the strength to give up a child. And if you have any lingering doubts as to the ease of having an elective abortion, I can assure you that while the procedure is exactly the same, the experience of having a DNC at an abortion clinic bears little resemblance to that of a hospital. Over the years, I would usually simply tell the OBGYN nurses that I had a DNC and fix them with a stare that dared them to ask more. <laughs> Side note, I cannot tell you how much it angers me that the word abortion is so fraught with emotion and so taboo that most women don't know that it's simply a medical term. This is important because it's usually written right there in black and white on your discharge paperwork after a loss, often piling unnecessary trauma on top of grief. I was 36 when a nurse in San Antonio finally asked, well, what happened to that one? Referring to my one pregnancy. But I'd been mentally armoring up for over 15 years, waiting for someone to ask. <laughs> and the great irony is that she asked on the day that I, newly married at 36, was planning to ask my OBGYN how to get pregnant after spending my entire adult life trying to avoid it like the plague. How many people who feel judged by healthcare providers in turn avoid seeking needed care? The possibility that even more healthcare providers may feel emboldened to attack patients under current Texas law really drives home to me the idea that abortion access is healthcare. At 43 years old, it's most likely that these will be the numbers for the, my numbers for the rest of my life four and one. One elective abortion, one ectopic pregnancy with a beating heart, removed laparoscopically to save my life, one blighted ovum with a second DNC, and finally one successful pregnancy that ended with a traumatic C-section. <laughs> By medical standards, that means I've had three abortions. As a young woman, I was pro-choice for several good reasons. As a woman approaching menopause, I am 10 times more pro-choice for all the women and circumstances 
that I have encountered, and even more so for the ones I've been privileged enough to have no firsthand knowledge of, and for the women and families each day who make impossible choices in impossible circumstances. Hello, my name is Tyler. I'm Barbara's husband. As my wife can attest, I'm not very adept at remembering dates. I forget my birthday most, most years. <laughs> so I don't remember the month, the date, or the day of the week, but I remember the phone call. I was driving to work in Austin. I had just exited 35. We had been struggling to get pregnant for some time, but one day a pregnancy test had come back positive. Just to make sure, so the second. There was excitement mixed with a little terror. There was a real chance we, and when I say we, I mean Barbara, since she was doing all the real work, were pregnant. But, to speak simply, we're old. In pregnancy terms, geriatric, a.k.a. high risk. I think Barbara was more than happy, but also more cautiously optimistic compared to me. I hadn't given much thought to the possibility that something may go awry. Concerns had already caused one trip to the ER, so precautionarily, we made an appointment with a local OB. The hormone levels continued to rise, too high to be a coincidence, but the OB said she couldn't see anything during the ultrasound, said there didn't appear to be any implantation. Despite the hormone levels increasing, she was adamant she should be able to see something. The doctor ignored the test results, the symptoms Barbara was describing, and even became a bit indignant when we asked questions. Even though she couldn't explain the hormone levels, she did not think Barbara was pregnant. This was the first failure, the first misstep that could have resulted in a worse tragedy. Within the past few years, a fair amount of research has focused on the medical community's interaction with women, or more aptly described, the meaningful lack thereof. Doctors hear what women are telling them, but are not listening to what they say. Women's symptoms are discounted, downplayed, misdiagnosed, or even completely ignored. This is not just men or male doctors ignoring women at the risk of painting with too broad a brush. This gender bias has been shown to be pervasive across disciplines within the entire medical community. Moreover, when looking at interactions among medical professionals and ethnic minorities, women with a lower SES, socioeconomic status, or otherwise marginalized women, the disparity only becomes more pronounced. A couple of weeks later came the phone call. I don't remember it vividly, more a dreamlike haze, fuzzy around the edges, watched from a third-person point of view, the slowness of a dream when comprehension and movement are made through thick syrup. She was crying. I'm bleeding, she told me. I think I need to go to the emergency room. I asked if she was okay. We both knew okay was a relative term. She said yes, but something isn't right. I asked if she wanted me there, and she told me she did. I turned around to meet her at the hospital. At the time, I thought it was a potential miscarriage. That wouldn't have been great, but in hindsight, that might have been a little easier to process. The doctor, who had a couple of weeks before been certain Barbara wasn't pregnant, who had discounted tests and what Barbara had been trying to tell her, made a mistake. Oops. It turns out Barbara was pregnant. Implantation had happened inside Barbara's fallopian tube. The fetus continued to grow. It had a heartbeat. 
There wasn't anything we could do. What had brought joy and excitement and maybe some anxiousness a short while ago now brought fear and heartbreak. I'm going to quote Barbara from one of her earlier drafts. Ectopic pregnancies are both complicated and simple. Firstly, they can be life-threatening. Secondly, they are not viable. There is no relocating or re-implanting an ectopic pregnancy to make it viable, despite what some law despite what some lawmakers believe. While a chemical option, methotrexate, was discussed because the effects of that drug were not immediate, because rupture could happen suddenly at any time, if we chose that option, Barbara would need to stay within 10 minutes of an ER until the process was complete or risk internally bleeding out. To save her tube, to save Barbara, the doctor recommended immediate surgery. There was nothing left for us to do but prep and try to process a difficult situation. At this point, time was of the essence, so for me, grieving was a distant second priority. My wife was in a potentially life-threatening situation. It had a heartbeat. Even before June 24, 22, reversal of Roe's case law, there was September 1st, 21, and Texas Senate Bill 8, the heartbeat bill. Given the ultra-restrictive constraints on women's reproductive health care, which can now be prosecuted both criminally, state laws due to Roe reversal, and civilly, Senate Bill 8, many women, families, and health care providers are facing impossible decisions. What level of civil and criminal risk is acceptable personally? A fine? Jail? Prison? What constitutes life-threatening or a medical emergency? Is it the imminent rupture of a fallopian tube or the moment a woman loses consciousness due to internal bleeding? Is it intrauterine fetal demise or sepsis-induced renal failure? Unfortunately, these decisions are no longer between doctors and patients. They are now between hospital administrators and attorneys. They are between state and national legislators and lobbyists. I'm not great at remembering my anniversary. But I do remember when an ectopic pregnancy could have taken my wife. I remember when medical decisions were made between patients and healthcare providers, when pharmacists provided doctor prescribed medications, not lectures on morality, when agonizing decisions were left to the folks experiencing them. I remember that phone call. Now, there are people who write and influence these laws and decisions who think their sense of morality is more important than a woman's bodily autonomy and health, who, though no cost to them, are willing to pay the price with other women's suffering and even death. And that we should all always remember. It's kind of hard to follow all of that. Um, I'm Donna Howard. I've been a coming to this church member since 1976. Um, my spiritual home, though I haven't been here for several years now, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of which was, and I do have to mention my husband, Derek, who was also active in this church and who had serious health issues that we had to go through several, well, a year and a half of working on. Uh, he died during COVID. We couldn't have a memorial service. So this is just my way of recognizing him in this space. Um, anyway, just had to say something there. But I'm one of those politicians. 
I'm one of those legislators, though, not in support of what you referred to. Um, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. The first two of the seven principles that Unitarian Universalists affirm and promote as our moral guides. When the decision came down from the Supreme Court denying the half-century of constitutional protection of privacy to make one's own decisions about reproductive choices, the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, Reverend Dr. Susan Frederick Gray, issued a statement saying in part, quote, Access to abortion and the right to choose is an issue of gender equity, bodily autonomy, and religious liberty, all of which are long-held Unitarian Universalist religious teachings. Curtailing reproductive rights will be felt most by people of color, young people, poor and working-class people, and those living in rural areas, end quote. The shift from reproductive rights to the more accurate reproductive justice, as we heard earlier from Elizabeth, came about with leadership from women of color who wanted a more inclusive recognition beyond the political and somewhat entitled focus on choice to also focus on the socioeconomic and health factors impacting these decisions, especially among women of color. Without the ability to access abortion health care, the right to choose was meaningless. Abortion access has always disproportionately impacted women of color and those with limited resources. Prior to Roe v. Wade, women who could afford it were able to travel to so-called safe states where procedures could be more safely performed. According to the Gutmiker Institute, between 1972 and 1974, when Roe was decided, the mortality rate for non-white women due to illegal abortion was 12 times that of white women. The same disproportionate impacts occur today in our post-Roe world. It is much more difficult for women with limited resources, and in our state, people of color are disproportionately represented among low-income Texans. It's much more difficult to obtain contraceptives in the first place. Once pregnant and seeking an abortion, there are often insurmountable costs and challenges. Finding a provider, having the funds to pay for the procedure, as well as travel expenses, as Elizabeth pointed out earlier, lost pay, child care arrangements, and as has also been pointed out, most women seeking abortion already have children. And there are additional challenges beyond those obstacles. Being forced to carry a pregnancy actually puts women's lives at risk. The state of Texas keeps records of abortions, and over the past 10 years, there has been only one recorded death, presumably resulting from the abortion. At the same time, Texas has one of the worst rates of maternal morbidity and mortality in the nation, as well as in the developed world. And black moms die at three times the rate of white moms. If anybody's watching House of the Dragon, 
and have seen the horrific examples of births on that show. What struck me and what I'm mentioning now just after hearing the stories today is they said childbirth is the battlefield of women. And indeed it is. We also heard about the physicians and what they can and cannot do at this point in time after the legislation that's been passed. I have been told by multiple physicians, we are waiting for women to start dying before we can do anything. There have been unrelenting efforts over the past decade at the Texas legislature to obstruct access to abortion, culminating in the de facto ban, Senate Bill 8, in 2021, even prior to the Supreme Court ruling. Much of this drive has been couched in religious dogma, protecting life. Without regard for facts and science, or for differing faith-based views on when life begins. The oft-touted cry for religious freedom at the Capitol really means freedom for me and my evangelical faith, not freedom for yours. The brilliance of Roe v. Wade was the balance achieved between ideologies and beliefs by drawing the line of demarcation at the viability of the fetus. This allowed for protecting the rights of the pregnant person, woman. I'm going to oftentimes say woman. I try to be inclusive, but I'm also focused on women. It protects them for the first more than half of the pregnancy, balances that with the rights of the potential life of the developing fetus when it can survive outside of the womb. It was both logical and biological. This brings me to the crux in my opinion, of reproductive justice. Do I own my own body? The foundation of a democracy is self-determination. Without being able to make the most fundamental decisions about one's own body means there is not full participation in governing or in democracy. I came of age before Roe v. Wade when women couldn't get abortions but also couldn't access contraceptives if they were unmarried, couldn't get a credit card without the signature of their husband or father, even when they were supporting themselves as I myself was as a young woman. I saw firsthand how unplanned pregnancies derailed women's educational and employment opportunities. The socioeconomic and health benefits that women have experienced over the past half century since Roe have been profound the ability to determine if and when to have a family, to pursue educational and employment opportunities has been greatly enhanced by the ability to have autonomy over our own bodies, something that sperm donors have always enjoyed, despite the fact that they share 50% of the responsibility for the pregnancy, but oftentimes 0% of the consequences. This is about personal freedom, and respecting women to know what is best for themselves, their families, and their own destinies. This is about giving women control over their very lives without government interference. This is about respecting the inherent worth and dignity of all and ensuring justice, equity, and compassion. There is no alternative There is no going back. 
In closing, words again from UUA President Reverend Frederick Gray, quote, I am filled with holy fury. Before Roe protected our right to abortion, Unitarian Universalists were participating with other faith communities to help women access safe abortion. And we are going right back to that work as faith communities. We will fight for every single one of us, and we will win, and we will not stop fighting until we win, end quote. May it be so. Please join me in saying the words to extinguish the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Come and go with me to that land. Come and go. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.